Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Fancy Scientist podcast. I have a fantastic interview today for you. I interviewed somebody who works at the Lincoln Park Zoo, but it's not your typical zoo job. Even with research positions at zoo jobs, we think about them going to faraway places in Africa or Asia. But this person's job, Dr. Seth Nagel, is to study urban wildlife. In other words, the wildlife that lives all around us. I wanted to talk to Seth because I moved to Chicago recently, and although I knew about the urban wildlife here, especially the coyotes, I have really been impressed with them. For example, I have only seen a coyote once in my entire life, and that was in Yellowstone National Park, where the animals are really used to tourists and more likely to come out. But since having moved here to the Chicago area, in August, I have now seen coyotes three times in the broad daylight, like not at dusk, not running away, just broad daylight. I've also seen red foxes really well, and I've seen a lot of cool butterflies, snakes. So I wanted to bring Seth on the podcast to talk to him about urban wildlife. And this is something that, as we talk about in this podcast, that has been overlooked for a long time. You'd be surprised by how little information we know about some of the most common species. So we talk a lot about urban wildlife, especially in the Chicago area research, but also what his job is like at the zoo and what zoo jobs are like in general. And at the end, Seth gives some really great advice that backs up the advice I give. And some advice too, if you're scared to networking, the importance of it, and he gives you some tips. So even if you're more introverted, the odds are in favor when you network. So make sure you stay tuned all to the end if you are interested in careers in wildlife. So without further ado, let's enjoy this interview with Dr. Seth Magel. Welcome to the Fancy Scientist podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, an unconventional wildlife biologist who never fit the scientist stereotype. In this podcast, I share with you my insights as a scientist and offer you real talk on wildlife, research, conservation, and advice on this unusual career. Being a wildlife biologist is not what you think it is. Join me to learn what science is really like and how to become the best version of yourself so you can thrive, effectively conserve nature, and enjoy this beautiful life we share with so many other beings. Let's get started. Hi, Seth. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Hi, Stephanie. I'm happy to be here. So you're an expert in urban wildlife. And more recently, that's become popular. But when I was in graduate school, it really wasn't. And actually, even though I studied urban wildlife most recently, it took me a while to get interested in it. And I think a lot of scientists, they want to go to these faraway places and big national parks where nature is untouched by humans. So how did you get interested in urban wildlife? Yeah, well, you're definitely right. And I'm sure we can get into what I like to call the snobbery of ecology and wildlife <laughs> biology. But I actually got into urban work very early. When I was yeah. an undergraduate, I took a course in animal behavior. It was my favorite class. And as part of it, we had to observe some animals. And so I, being 
very lazy, happened to know that there was a colony of prairie dogs living about a block from my apartment. Prairie dogs are very easy because they're diurnal. They're sort of stuck to their burrows right where they are. So I was like, this will be great. I don't have to actually find anything. I don't have to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to go across the street and I'm going to watch these prairie dogs for this assignment. So I did that, but I hit problems after I collected the data for that project, because then I had to go to the library and find articles and papers that I could use to write about them. And I learned quickly, and maybe you had the same experience, that there was nothing known about these animals in urban systems. No one had done any studies about them at all. So it made for a pretty disappointing class project. But it also left me with this just sense of disbelief that mm -hmm. these animals that live around people, that people lived right next to, that thousands of people walk by every day, were only understood in environments that were nothing like where I was seeing them. And I think for anyone who has that kind of curious scientific mindset, it's exciting to stumble across something that's right in front of you that nobody knows about, that you could become very quickly the world expert on just by virtue of the fact that you're the only one working on it. So that was how I got my start and I really never looked back. Why do you think it is that scientists have overlooked urban wildlife? And maybe you can talk a little bit about the snobbery of it. <laughs> yeah, I sort of feel like there's a contest amongst your classic old guard ecologist is like, who is working in the most remote, most pristine spaces? <laughs> and you can sometimes see them get into these debates about, oh, well, I had to fly in on a bush plane and then I had to drive six hours and then I had to hike three days to get to my field site. Parents saying how they went uphill both ways, like when they were a kid to get to mm -hmm. school. You have to prove your bona fides. But like, well, I really suffered. I really worked hard to get to this sort of space. And the notion that you could say, oh, well, you know, I collected my data in the parking lot of a footlocker, <laughs> right? It doesn't meld with their vision of what our profession is supposed to be. It's not that sort of animal planet vision of like, oh, I'm yeah. miles from anywhere and I'm sleeping in the wild. So I don't know about you, but I encountered a lot of, in some cases, pretty overt discrimination, I guess you would call it. I kept it for a long time. My first review that I got, it was for a doctoral dissertation improvement grant that I wrote when I was a PhD student. And the reviewer said, this author seems to labor under the misconception that we should spend time and energy to understand common species living in urban systems. So that was pretty interesting to get a review that basically just says your whole field of inquiry is not relevant, is not something we should spend money on. So yeah, I tried to use that kind of attitude to motivate me to work harder and to do more. But I worry sometimes that maybe we lose some of the, and I don't think it's as bad now as it was, mm -hmm. but maybe we lost some ecologists or scientists of my generation that maybe would have really been interested to work in that field and were just turned off of it by this kind of, yeah, this discrimination or this bias against people working in these urban systems. Yeah, I can remember having conversations with other biologists in Gabon, which is a more remote country or where we were in the country. And they were like one up in each other with like the stories of like mm -hmm. the most extreme things. And I always thought the funniest thing is even though I worked in within Africa, uh, all of my stuff was kind of like lampian because I stayed at these nice field stations <laughs> where they had like permanent structures. So everyone thought I was roughing it. And I went to grad school in Missouri. So everyone studying in Missouri had all these ticks and on them and everything. And like, I was like barely affected by any insects. But yeah, I definitely think that things are changing. And for me, I actually think that I did want to go far away. Like that was, I was really interested in other countries, but I also think I assumed that the stuff living close to us was studied. So it was really shocking when I found out later on that like, wow, people are really not studying this stuff. 
Yeah, it's amazing how little is known, even in some cases, about really common things like squirrels or pigeons. You know, one of the projects that I host here is the Chicago Rat Project. You know, rats, of course, may be the oldest urban species in the world, present in mm -hmm. almost every urban landscape. And still, when you dig in, you find out that there's a ton that is unknown about rats. And you would think just out of our own sense of self-preservation, yeah. we would know more about these species. And when I've asked a lot of people why they think that is, they've sort of said, well, rats are icky. Like why, <laughs> really? why do you want to study something that's icky? Yeah. But, you know, I think it's, I think it's really important work. And I actually also think that rats are fascinating, you know, albeit dangerous to humans and the diseases that they carry and stuff. But I think that you have to kind of admire these common urban species because the reason they're so common is because they're so good at what they do, right? Mm -hmm. They're so well adapted to these urban systems that we've built. And uh, yeah, I think you have to kind of take your hat off to them sometimes. Yeah. I always thought rats were cute and kind of always wanted a pet rat, but yeah, people it, have it, pet rats. Is there a formal definition for urban wildlife? Boy, there are a lot of them, I think. And I've written mm -hmm. a few book chapters and usually open with that, right? You sort of define, what am I saying when mm -hmm. I say urban wildlife? And so I'm aware of several and they don't always agree. I'm not even sure. I have a favorite at this point. Um, you mm -hmm. know, both of those words are tricky, right? Because urban, how do you specifically define an urban area? Right. And usually people use cutoffs of human population density. How do you define wildlife, right? Because I think when I was coming up through grad school, when people said wildlife, no one meant plants. You know, I think they really meant kingdom animalia and mostly they really meant mammals and birds. But mm -hmm. if you pushed them, they'd say, oh, reptiles, amphibians, I guess, and insects, probably. These days, I think people often mean plants when they say wildlife, which I think is really interesting, but it's not the way that I was trained. So yeah, I guess my unsatisfying answer to your question is I'm not sure that there is a good yeah. definition for really either of those words. And you work at the Lincoln Park Zoo. And when we think of zoos, or when we go to zoos, it's actually rare to at least my experience in the U.S. zoo, it's rare to see native species in zoos. I mean, native to our area. So how, what's the connection between urban wildlife and the Lincoln Park Zoo? And can you tell me a little bit about your job and what you do on a daily basis? Yeah, of course. So the Lincoln Park Zoo is a free zoo in Chicago, Illinois. And we do have a, even before I came here, they have a very significant interest in maintaining awareness and research about local species. The children's zoo portion of the zoo is all native species to Illinois, which I think is very exciting. And then as kind of a random just happenstance that I just think is so cool, this colony of black-crowned night herons, which are a state endangered species in Illinois, oh, wow. uh, it's the largest colony in the state. And every year they nest in that area of the zoo. So they have, it's almost like they pick up on the native species vibe or something, cool. but they show up every year, they create this huge colony. It's kind of, it's kind of amazing. But yeah, I've been here at the zoo for a long time, it really started just after they initiated this Urban Wildlife Institute where I work. And, you know, I really have to take my, you know, give respect to the CEO and the others who were here at the time who really looked around and said, okay, what is it that other zoos aren't doing that's important? And they said, mm -hmm. well, a lot of zoos are doing a lot of work in these biodiversity hotspots, often in Africa or Asia. They're working mm -hmm. on these big fuzzy, charismatic species that everybody gets excited about. You know, the typical model of zoo conservation is you figure out what's the biggest, fuzziest, cuddliest, most charismatic thing you have <laughs> at your zoo. You figure out where they live in the wild and they're always horribly endangered, right? Because they're always mm. suffering from poachers and loss of habitat and stuff. And you throw some money at that, right? You hire some people and you try to figure out how you can make a difference there, which is super important work. But I think, and we do that kind of work too. But I think that there was this idea that, well, what, we, what can we do that no one else is doing? And they looked mm -hmm. around and they said, well, no one's really looking at these issues of urban wildlife. And we're an urban zoo. We're right in the heart of Chicago. And our guests and our donors and our board 
most of their life doesn't involve interactions with lions and rhinos, right? Most mm -hmm. of their life involves interactions with raccoons and opossums and deer and squirrels. And wouldn't it be interesting if we could see what kind of noise we could make in that space? What's What could be done there to sort of improve human wildlife coexistence? And when I came to the zoo, I was given a really broad mandate. It was really like urban wildlife. I don't know. What do you want to do? Um, That's awesome. It was kind of awesome, but also kind of daunting at the same time. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of amazing how much freedom that we have here to do the kind of work that we want to do. And we've carved out a research niche for ourselves that I'm sure we'll get into more here in a minute. But to come back to your point, one of the things that I was very aware of coming in because I talked to people at other zoos is they said, well, people aren't going to fund this. No one will write a check to support urban wildlife. Mm -hmm. They're going to write a check for tigers and they're going to write a check for pandas. They won't write a check for raccoons. And that was the conventional prevailing wisdom. And I think that has proven to be not true. It turned out that people will provide funding for these kinds of species because they care about their city and the wildlife mm -hmm. are a part of the city. They're citizens of the city and they interact with us in both positive and negative ways. And people are really invested in that in a way that I don't think people realized before yeah. we kind of got started. And it, it comes back to what you were saying before about this massive increase in interest in urban wildlife, I think. Just going back to the herons real quick, why do you think that they chose the zoo as their location? What is there anything special about it? Yeah, we're always trying to do research to, to figure out why that is. And I have colleagues at the Audubon, and they know more about birds than I do. They're the Audubon, but they will insist that the birds are wrong. They're like, they picked the wrong spot. They should not be living at the zoo. There are much better na nature areas they should be using. But yeah, so one of the things that happened the same year they showed up is that the zoo unveiled this nature area that we have just south of our zoo called Nature Boardwalk. And it's this mm -hmm. big urban pond that's all completely covered with native vegetation. And we're sort of stocked the fish. And we introduced some turtles with some other turtles, found the site on their own. And I think that little oasis really attracts them because they are fish eating birds. So I think that's really exciting to them. You know, why this spot specifically? We've done some research into things like, well, the trees are the right height. They're kind of spaced out the right distance, herons like. But one of the stories that I always think is interesting. So most of their colony actually nests above an exhibit that we have of red wolves, endangered red wolves. And it on the surface, it's a baffling choice because black horned night herons are terrible nest builders. So every time there's a windstorm, their young fall out of the nest. And in our case, they fall into the red wolf yard. <laughs> Sometimes the red wolves eat the night herons. And, you know, we had some interesting conversations with fish and wildlife about what happens when a federally endangered species eats a state endangered species, <laughs> to which they sort of put their fingers in their ears and said, la, 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 I can't hear you. But so for a couple of years there, we were like, oh my gosh, that's so silly. Why, why would they do that? And then we thought about it a little more and we realized, well, Nest predation is probably a huge problem if you're a black crown night heron, especially mm -hmm. in this area with raccoons and everything else. If the base of your trees are inside of a red wolf exhibit, nothing's going to crawl up and eat your babies. So it's possible that the losses from the windstorm and stuff. They balance each other out. Yeah, or there's, out. More, there's more of an advantage yeah. to that protection. So I'm not sure. But yeah, I'm. other than that, I'm not really sure. And we're always doing ongoing research on them to figure out why. And there, right now, there's some efforts to put up some, for a couple of reasons. One is that some people don't love that they nest at the zoo. But another is just we don't want all our eggs in one basket, so to speak. So we would love to see other colonies set up. So people are setting up some nesting platforms in other parts of the city, mm -hmm. tracked some or all of the colony to other spaces. And we'll see if they end up moving on over time. But yeah, for now, they seem very happy here. We see more every year. You know, their normal ecology is that they don't nest in the same place forever. They will eventually move on. That's what they do. But for oh, 15 or so years now, they've been very happy nesting here every spring and summer, which is pretty fun to watch. Cool. That's great. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is because I recently moved to Chicago and you obviously work and live in Chicago. And I have been 
so impressed with the wildlife here. I live in, I would say more suburban area than I did in Raleigh, North Carolina, but both were not in the, you know, not in the city center. They're more suburbs. But since I've been here in August, I've seen like red foxes really well in my yard. I've seen coyotes three times in the broad daylight. Can you talk a little bit about the wildlife of Chicago and what do you think is like either attracting the wildlife or what do you, why do you think it's like a good place compared to other cities? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. So I'm primarily by training a mammologist. And yeah, we just like you, I was kind of surprised when I came here, how often I would see coyotes, red Mm -hmm. fox, possums, raccoons, of course, they're just kind of everywhere. Mm But um, yeah, and then on our camera traps, I've been surprised at how frequently we see things like mink and flying squirrels that I did oh, wow. not expect to capture in the city, but which are present. Beavers, people are starting to see more otters in the city. I have still never seen one in real life, but I'm excited mm-hmm. to see an otter someday. So yeah, there's this amazing diversity. And I think it's so with the mammals, I guess I'm going to point to the fact that a lot of early planning in the city really valued wildlife much more early than I think a lot of other people did. You look at the Chicago Wilderness Alliance and all of the county nature preserve systems that exist all around the city, that sort of emerald ring around Chicago. And I think Mm -hmm. that's really maintained a lot of species. In the city itself, I'm always kind of amazed by the fact that the entire lakefront of Lake Michigan is conserved as green space. So you have this Mm built-in corridor that mammals can use. And then, of course, when you think about bird diversity, and I'm not a bird expert, but we're right on this migratory flyway. So it's an amazing Mm -hmm. place to see all different kinds of birds during migration, which I think is great too. So yeah, I was not necessarily expecting when I first moved here to really see the diversity that you have in this region. I don't think most people, when they think of Chicago, the first thing they think isn't like, oh, biodiversity. But it is pretty remarkable considering how built up the area is that we do have a lot of species here and many of them doing very well. Yeah. I mean, the only time I've seen a coyote was in when I was in Yellowstone. It's not a zoo, but it's just like they're so used to tourists and they're not scared. So yeah, I was really surprised to see them three times pretty in the broad daylight, just chilling. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a cemetery right by my house where typically people would see them a lot. They actually, that pair seems to have either moved on or died. I haven't seen them in a few months, but I was walking around looking for them and just this random older couple came up to me and said, where are the coyotes? You know where they went? And I was kind of like, how did you know I'm a wildlife biologist? But they didn't. They just were asking random Uh, people because they were so interested and invested in the coyotes. So yeah, people get really attached to them, which I think is pretty interesting. So you would say here then that most, would you say that most people in Chicago like support the coyote community? Because I did some TikToks and reels recently about coyotes and oh my gosh, I got so many comments, a lot of them negative. And of course, that's not just the Chicago area. It's people commenting from all over the world. But do you have a sense of like how people in Chicago feel about the coyotes? Yeah, I do. And I think in the 15 or so years I've been in Chicago, I think it's changed a lot. When Mm -hmm. I started in this job, I got a couple calls a week, I would say, from someone who wanted to tell me that they had seen a coyote on the street and they would want to know what they could do to get rid of it. They'd say, mm-hmm. that thing doesn't belong here. Who do I call? How do we trap it? How do we get rid of it? And they'd be very upset when I would tell them that's not what we do. That's not what the city does. You know, last, well, two or three years ago, we worked with the city to create an animal, a wildlife coexistence plan for the city that sort of talks about when intervention is needed and really emphasizing that usually it's not. Mm-hmm. I don't get those calls anymore. And And if when I do get calls about coyotes, people say, I saw a coyote on my street and then they're just, I just thought you'd want to know because I thought it was cool. Mm -hmm. So I think there's been a big swing. Now there are still,
still definitely those people that you're talking about. I usually encounter them when I'm in the field sometimes. People who don't like the coyotes, who feel threatened by them, who feel mm -hmm. scared. Often those people are surprised, but, you know, I think kind of happy when I tell them that attacks by coyotes, people are very rare, almost mm -hmm. never happens. Attacks on pets are more common, and that's why we should all, you know, do a good job of keeping an eye on our pets when they're outside. But yeah, you know, and when there are these rare attack events, unfortunately, they get blown up in the media because they do happen every once in a while, but they're extremely rare and usually the result of someone feeding a coyote, as you know. Mm -hmm. So, yes, even though there are still definitely those folks that you're talking about who have those attitudes, in my view, there's been a big swing. And I was kind of surprised during the pandemic, I feel like a lot of people were contacting me and they really were curious how the wildlife were changing their behavior. They were worried about the wildlife. They wanted to know more about them. And I feel like something about being cooped up inside made people kind of yearn to see wildlife and biodiversity and really had a lot of interest in it in a way that I didn't expect. So I'm optimistic about the way things are changing with how we think about what belongs with us in our cities. And then you also have projects where you involve community members to participate in science, correct? Can you tell yeah, us what... that's right. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Just can you tell us about um, some yeah. of those projects? Yeah. So we maintain a huge number of camera traps all around the metropolitan area of Chicago that collect images of wildlife all the time. And it's more than we can go through ourselves and sort. So we enlist the public to help us go through these images and tell us what animals are found in what places. That's website's called Chicago Wildlife Watch. You can go to chicagowildlifewatch.org. So it, it it fulfills a really important job for our research, and it's a way for anyone to be able to say that you are part of our research team and that you're really helping to learn about these species. But I hope it's also helping people to learn about the diversity we've been talking about, how many different species live in this area, mm -hmm. how to tell them apart, how do you tell a red fox from a coyote, how do you tell an opossum from a raccoon, all of that. So I really hope it's fulfilling that educational objective as well. And people really seem to enjoy engaging with it. We recently did an analysis of Chicago Wildlife Watch and how well our users are doing in identifying wildlife. And it turns out they're doing very well, that the errors are very low on the site. And we're getting really amazing quality data by enlisting the public, which is really exciting. Yeah, that's great. Do you use any of the like like sightings that the public reports to you or iNaturalist data or anything like that for your research? We are starting to, at times, kind of use that, especially when we're thinking about developing new studies and kind of if we were going to you know, really focus in on something rare, right? Like like otters, right? We would probably start from where are people seeing them? What mm -hmm. do those neighborhoods look like? What are the features of the landscape there that maybe attracts that species? So yes, we're definitely tapping into that. And we're also starting to do some projects that combine our data that we collect through camera traps, through audio detection devices for bats and birds with those kinds of data sources from iNaturalist or eBird to sort of see what are the biases in each data set? Can they be combined in a way that provides us with something more robust than we get from either source alone? We actually recently received a grant to look at data from social media. So when people post on social mm -hmm. media, like, oh, I saw a coyote in my yard, like, can we get a location on that, turn it into data, and what does that data set look like? And does it fill in some gaps in the other data sets that exist? So uh, all of these different sources, I think, um, provide something that the others don't. Yeah, because because with iNaturalist, you're probably getting a certain type of person that does that, but coyotes are seen everywhere and people are very likely to post it on TikTok or Twitter or whatever. And for those of you who are listening to the podcast and not watching, Seth has a background of camera trap photos that make up a coyote. Did you use a program to make that? Yeah, we did. So we used a mosaic program. We took our favorite camera trap image of a coyote and then we 
reassembled it from other camera trap images of coyotes. So if you zoomed in oh, tightly okay. enough on this image, every one of those little pixels is that, well, it's not a pixel, but those yeah. little blocks is a little tiny coyote from somewhere, actually from all across our network of almost 50 cities that we work with to gather data. Cool. I thought maybe an intern was like matching up the photos. I'm just joking. It was it was actually an intern, <laughs> but they used a program to do it. But but that, that would be a cool, thankless, thankless task. for. Oh my God, I would hate doing that. So oh tedious. So as a scientist, what are the kinds of things you do on a daily basis? I have a lot of people who are interested in careers and zoo careers. Like what kinds of things do you do? And you talked a little bit about your research, but what does your job entail? Yeah, I absolutely love working at a zoo and I wasn't sure that I would when I started, but I just absolutely fell in love with it. Someone on Twitter the other day posted something where they said, I'm so tired of people talking about zoo jobs. Don't look for zoo jobs. They don't exist. So I had to respond and say, you know, I actually have a zoo job and several of my colleagues do too, but they are rare, I think is the point that they were making. Zoo jobs are pretty rare, but if you expand that to look at like NGO nonprofit jobs, right, then you get a little bit of a wider pool of things to apply for. Not, And I haven't worked at places like Nature Conservancy or Audubon, but I know a lot of people who have, and I think the environments are similar. So I hope that some of my observations might be relevant to those kinds of jobs too. But the thing that I like a lot about my job, and I was alluding to this earlier, is that I have a lot of freedom to chase after different mm-hmm. things. You know, I think early in my career, I thought I would be an academic and mm-hmm. academics, of course, do amazing work. But I think the thing I would have found restrictive is that academics have very limited metrics of success or currencies of success, right? Yeah. It's basically publication and grants. And if you're a good teacher, that's good too, but mostly it's publications and grants. For me, I can do community outreach, right? I can do media work. I can do community science work that maybe it's not Mm -hmm. publishable. It makes an impact in the community. And that all counts as success towards my career. Those are all things that the zoo values that they kind of appreciate. And I really like having that broader scope of things that I could do. So I supervise a lot of people. So in my day-to-day basis, I'm doing a lot of that kind of administrative work. I'm helping them to shape their projects. I'm usually, I'm probably doing some grant writing. I probably have a manuscript that I'm working on. I teach a little bit just for fun at DePaul Mm -hmm. University. So maybe sometimes I'm teaching or getting ready to teach a class. I don't have to do that, but I just do. And then sometimes I get pulled into zoo things that really don't have a whole lot to do with conservation necessarily, but maybe we're having a discussion Mm -hmm. about how do we message a new exhibit or what kind of new species should we be introducing the public to? And I I didn't have any training in that, but I get pulled into it and it's kind of interesting too. I collaborate a lot with our other teams, for example, our learning team, which is our educational team to talk about how do we turn the science that we do into messages that we can get to the public? How do we Mm -hmm. influence people's behavior? How do we influence their behavior to live more wildlife friendly, for example? Mm -hmm. So I do a lot of that kind of outreach. So I have a really varied series of day-to-day responsibilities and I have a bit to a lot of say over what I emphasize within that portfolio of things that I do. And I think that's, that's a really exciting aspect of my job. Yeah. It sounds like a great job. It sounds like, it sounds basically like you're a professor, except the teaching part, although you do have some teaching and, and instead of graduate students, maybe you supervise other people in their projects. Yeah, in some ways, I do have a lot of access to the things that professors have access to. I have co-advised a few graduate students through local universities as well. You know, one downside, of course, I can't get tenure, right? I'm not Mm -hmm. part of that tenure track process, which is kind of too bad. There are definitely also some limitations to being at a small zoo. I don't have all the resources that a professor would have, right? I don't have Mm -hmm. access to a big statistics department I can lean on. I don't have Mm -hmm. access to armies of undergraduates that I could use, but I have access to interns and volunteers who in some ways fulfill the same role. 
So I work with a lot of academics and, uh, and that's a good thing because building those collaborations enables me to have access to some of the things that otherwise I wouldn't. And uh, so, yeah, that's been very helpful too, but you're right that in some ways the positions are probably pretty similar. Yeah. Sorry. My, I just, my microphone got changed, but I think it, it loosened up a little bit. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, no, that, that sounds really great that, that you're able to have that much flexibility and able to do research like that. I, I know you mentioned that the pressures are less at the zoo or the metrics are different than they would be in academia. Are there still st- certain standards you have to hit in terms of like, like grants, successful grants and papers published and things like that? Yeah. So when I was an undergraduate, I worked briefly in environmental consulting. So I sort of worked in the for-profit corporate space. And of course I was a postdoc and a graduate student. So I had some exposure to academia. And I always like to say that working in a nonprofit is a strange hybrid of the two, because sort of like in a corporate culture, I have annual performance appraisals. I set annual goals with my supervisor and I try to hit those. It's much more gentle, I think, than it probably is in a for-profit universe, but it's not as freeform as if I really was a professor where, you know, once you have tenure, it's, well, do what you want. You're not really yeah. particularly accountable to anybody. I am, I'm always going to be accountable to the zoo and to my supervisor and others. So in some ways it's, and the culture is much more kind of nine to five, which has pros and cons, right? The con is there's not the total freedom of like, oh, I'm just going to go, you know, maybe work remotely for a month and I don't have to clear that with anyone. The pro is that I don't work a lot more than 40 hours a week. And I don't know a lot of academics who can say that, you know, they tend to work really long, really punishing hours. And at the zoo, the culture is really that we very rarely work on weekends. We very rarely work late. It's much more like a, like sort of a corporate job or a government job that way. And I really appreciate that flexibility. And I know that a lot of my coworkers do too, or not flexibility that I don't know what to call it. The standard, the standardizedness of our work week. Yeah, there's limits, that kind of work-life balance that's built into that. So yeah, those are things that I tell people when they're sort of exploring careers in conservation and they want to know what's it like mm-hmm. sort of in that zoo environment. That's it, It's much more structured than academia, I would say, but also in mm-hmm. some ways a lot gentler. How did you like working in consulting? I did not. Well, Compared to the jobs that a lot of my friends were working when we were undergraduates, it was interesting and there were aspects of it that I liked. You know, what I was doing a lot of was what they call phase one environmental site assessment. So someone would be wanting to buy a parcel of land and it would be my job to go check it out, sort of mm-hmm. look at biodiversity a little bit, but more so like, is there contaminants or there environmental contaminants, things like that. So it was really just a liability job. I was really just looking yeah. out for liability and I found it pretty boring pretty quickly, but it was interesting to kind of see what the for-profit world for folks with, you know, maybe a biology degree or some kind of that is open to them. I did a little bit of other things like lead paint assessment, asbestos assessment that were even more boring. You know, so I didn't, obviously I didn't love it because I went to grad school. I knew I wanted to do something else, but it was interesting from a culture standpoint to kind of see what those jobs are like. In the end, I've always felt like I wanted to do something with my career that at the end of the day, I really felt like made a big difference in the world. And I didn't think that was it for me. I could have definitely made a lot more money if I had stayed in that field and kept going that way. But uh, yeah, I decided to go a different direction. Yeah. A lot of people I talk to who are consulting jobs too say that they get depressed because they have to like assess a piece of land and determine if there's endangered species on it or not. And most times there's probably not. And then they have to like watch it get bulldozed. So it's a, it can be a, a difficult job for that reason as well. Yeah. I didn't really encounter any big wins in that job, right? There weren't mm-hmm. any days at the end of the day where I was like, wow, I really did something important and cool today. It was kind of just like, like other jobs I'd had, I was just kind of like, oh, got through the day and I didn't want to live my life like yeah. that. So what are some big wins you've had at your current job? 
Yeah, well, I already mentioned, I mean, I was very excited when the city actually approached us and said, help us write a plan for how we're going to coexist mm -hmm. with wildlife. So it was really exciting to think that our science would be used directly in a document that people mm -hmm. are, you know, animal control officers and others are using every day when they encounter people in wildlife and conflict. I considered that to be a really big win. You know, of course, every time you get a big grant, and we've had some big grants, it always mm -hmm. feels like a win. When you publish a paper that you're really excited about in the journal that you want, that always feels like a big win. And we've had a few of those as well. You know, the big push for us the last five or six years really has been after we built this system that we use to collect data in urban wildlife, this kind of research protocol that we use, we really felt strongly about it. And we said, I wonder if we could get other people to replicate this design in other cities. You know, is this something that would work outside of Chicago? And we've been very pleased to see that it, that it has been. And we have almost 50 cities now collecting data under our same protocol, which enables us to ask and answer questions about urban wildlife at a continental to a global scale. And I think that's been a huge win just to see other people in the scientific community understanding the value of what we've built, wanting to be a part of it and creating this enormous research team that goes way beyond just the people who work here at the zoo. I would say that's been our biggest win. Yeah, that's really, 50 cities, that's a lot. Yeah, um, we, we and we just recently received a grant that is supposed to add cities outside of North America in biodiversity hotspots. So hopefully very soon that network will start to look more global and less kind of North America centric, which is unfortunately how it has looked so far. But we're always growing it and we're always looking for new partners. What advice would you have for, for younger either students or early career professionals for going into this field or trying to get a zoo job? Yeah, well, I think those are two questions. So I'll answer mm -hmm. the first one first. So just people going into this field, I think very often the conversation that I have, and I don't know if you've had the same one through this podcast or your other interactions, but people always approach me and they say, what degree should I get? Should I get a master's? Should I get a PhD? Where should I get it from? And my take has always been, I don't think that's the right question. I think mm -hmm. that's the right place to start. I think you start with what job do I want? Yes. Because I have definitely seen people overqualify themselves for the job they want by getting too many degrees. So my, my advice in that regard is try to find that person, like look around and look at professors, mm -hmm. people who work for federal agencies, state agencies, government agencies, watch podcasts like this one and kind of learn about these different professionals until you find the person where you're like, okay, that something like that is what I want to do. And then I think when you know that, you can figure out what the degree is that you need to do that and go get that degree and figure out ideally maybe what your thesis or dissertation topic is going to be that that really prepares you for that. You may not have a choice about that because you may come into a lab that just hands you a project. But so that's my first piece of big advice. For your second advice, specifically about zoo jobs, and as I said, they're pretty rare, but there are a lot of nonprofit jobs that are a little bit related. You know, I think that for organizations like mine, which have to do a lot with a small team, it's almost the opposite advice that I think if you're going into academia, I think to do well in academia, it's good to be very specialized, right? To be very good at one thing and then hope that somebody is hiring someone to do that thing and you blow everyone else out of the water. But we tend to hire generalists, people who know a little bit of this and a little bit of that. We really like hiring people who are good communicators because we do so much outreach to the public. So we're really looking for people who are comfortable speaking to groups and to all different kinds of groups, scientific, technical talks, but also if you can talk to fifth graders, you know, sometimes we're talking mm -hmm. to fifth graders here at the zoo. So that's really important. People who can express their passion for the subject, right? Because mm -hmm. we all got into this because we ultimately care about these species, right? It shouldn't feel like some kind of strictly dry intellectual exercise. There should be some passion behind it. So we're definitely interested in those kinds of people. And then you know, this is sort of trite, but it's true. If you can do an internship, it's always a good way to get your foot in the door somewhere. Yeah. And I know that can be 
sort of privileged advice because a lot of people can't afford to take a low paying internship or something like that at the zoo. We have moved away from unpaid internships for that reason, because we don't want to exclude people who don't have the privilege to take on an unpaid internship. That said, it's still not like a super lucrative thing to do, even to take a paid mm -hmm. internship. So I realize that's difficult. But if you have the ability to either volunteer or take an internship, it's always a great way to get your foot in the door, not even just at whatever organization you're interning at, but it can open other doors, other places, which when they're very few jobs opening up is important. And of course, just networking, either either when you're in a yeah. position or when you're not. You know, I get a lot of emails from people who want to get into the field, who want my advice. I really try to answer as many of them as I can because I know how daunting it could be. And there's a lot of people like me that maybe you think aren't going to answer you. Maybe you don't want to cold email that person. Maybe it's intimidating. <laughs> what do you have to lose? I think yeah. it's worth reaching out because there's a lot more, I think, that will write you back than won't. Yeah, I recommend that to my students that I mentor as well. And so, yeah, it's like what like like nobody unless you're like emailing them like once a week or something like that. Nobody's going to be like, "Oh, remember Susie? <laughs> like she's the worst. She emailed me twice to ask me questions." <laughs> yeah. It would have to be a really irritating email for you to right. stick in their mind in a bad way. But I will also say, and this is I think especially true if you're emailing a graduate advisor, you're trying to get into graduate school to tailor the email a little bit because I do yes. get more excited when it's clear that someone's writing me and they know a little bit something about me and what mm -hmm. I do. If it's if I can tell it's the exact same form email they sent 100 people, I'll usually try to write them back if I can, but I'm definitely less excited about it than if it really seems like, oh, they really are interested in urban stuff or they're interested in zoos. That that helps. So if you can take that time to, to personalize your messages a little bit, it makes a big yeah. difference. Yeah, those are great tips. And I totally agree with you about your first thing. And that's actually like my biggest tip is to think about the job last. And that's what happened to me is I got my PhD and I didn't completely understand the jobs. So when I was applying for jobs, I, I did apply for PhD level jobs, but I also applied for a lot of master's level jobs. And um, for sure, at least one job, I know I didn't even get an interview because I had a PhD. So it can be excluding. And then just also it can waste your time and money as well if you don't need it. Yeah, it's counterintuitive because you think like, well, I love this field. I want to learn everything I can yeah. about it and get as many degrees as I can. And you wouldn't think that it would kind of, you know, over qualify you for these jobs. But especially like I know for a lot of government agencies, it's really a rule. If they have a job mm -hmm. that's at a GS, whatever, it's a master's level and you have a PhD, you are no longer qualified for that job. Mm -hmm. And here at the zoo, we don't have anything quite that hard and fast, but we have these conversations about, oh, this person's great, but we envision a master's, they have a PhD. Well, the pay scale for this job is still at a master's level. Like, are they going right. to take it when they have a PhD? And it, it leads to these awkward conversations. So yeah, if I can only give one piece of advice, it's the same as you is identify that job yeah. and then tailor your degree seeking to the job. And then final question is, uh, what do you love most about urban wildlife? Or why do you love urban wildlife? You can answer either one of those. Yeah, I... To me, it's just so critical that we understand these urban species because our planet is urbanizing and our planet is going to keep urbanizing for all of my lifetime and your lifetime. The population will kind of stabilize, but I think the land use change is probably not going to stabilize until a long time after that. And of course, we need nature preserves. Of course, we need these big, pristine spaces. But to me, it's the only... it's the only way we get to that happy ending to our conservation story that we want. Right. Because if the story is just, well, we preserve biodiversity in, in nature preserves that are far outside of human habitation and that's the end, you know, I think we all know that's not going to cut it with a trend in our planet. And when we have this narrative where it's just like, well, the cities are the villain, we have to stop the cities and we mm -hmm. have to create the preserves, we're going to lose that story, at least for centuries now. We're, 
we're not going to, you know, this whole like nature needs half thing. Are we going to set aside half of nature? I would love that, but no, I don't think we are. Mm -hmm. So then you can either go into this really doom and gloom space of like, okay, we're doomed. Everything is awful. Or you can try to flip the script and say, what if the cities weren't the bad guys? What mm -hmm. if we could conserve the biodiversity inside of the cities? That would take a massive effort, right? We're going to have to mm -hmm. collaborate with landscape architects and urban planners and developers. But if we could do it, we could really have that happy ending. We could really have a planet that still has biodiversity and has a place for people. To me, it's I don't see another solution. So I think the work is really important. I think that I'm fascinated by observing how all these species are adapting to cities and new species that are kind of finding new ways to survive and thrive in the city. I also think it's really intellectually interesting. And then, you know, selfishly, I like sleeping in my own bed. So there's a lot of things to like about urban ecology. You like being able to go out to lunch after you Exactly. Study. Yeah, I can, I can be in the middle of the day in the field and I can, you know, walk into my favorite diner and be in air conditioning for a minute. Like it doesn't suck. Well, thank you so much. It was great talking to you and just such great information and such a cool job you have. Thanks so much, Stephanie. Thank you once again, Seth, for coming on the podcast. It was really great to talk to you. I learned so much. And if you want to connect with Seth, which I highly recommend you do because he's really open to it, you can find him on Twitter at SB, B as in boy, Magle, M-A-G-L-E. And if you're really interested in urban wildlife, I'd encourage you to send him an email as well. He mentioned that he responds to a lot of the networking emails that people send out to him, so don't be scared to do that. In fact, after we stopped recording, we had a short discussion about networking and he really talked about how that the students or the interns that he supervised who have been networking, who he's seen network, for instance, they reach out to people and they meet with, up with them in real public. He said, those are the people who get their dream jobs. And I totally agree, you gotta network. And I actually have a networking masterclass coming up. So this is being recorded at the end of April. We'll be doing that in May, 2023. If you are listening to this later than May, it's likely that you'll be able to find the masterclass up on my website and you'll be able to access it there. But make sure that you are on my email list. Go to fancyscientist.com and sign up for any of the emails. There's several ways that you can sign up for freebies. Any of those, you'll be getting information about the networking masterclass, which is, again, essential. Essential. And another thing that I really want to do with this networking masterclass is make it for introverts. Because even though, not to toot my own horn, but even though I'm good at talking to people, I am social, I actually am introverted. So I'm going to really tailor this networking masterclass to introverts and, and teach you how to do it in a way that protects your own energy so you don't get exhausted. Because that's actually something that really happens to me as well. So make sure you go to fancyscientist.com and sign up for my email newsletters to be able to sign up for when it comes out. Thank you guys, everyone. I hope you have an amazing day. Be kind to others and be kind to the amazing, beautiful urban wildlife in your backyard. Are you an aspiring or struggling wildlife biologist, ecologist, conservation biologist, or anyone interested in a career with wildlife? join our community, the Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology Facebook group. Based on my book, Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology, What It's Like and What You Need to Know, this Facebook group is designed to connect, support, and inspire future and current wildlife professionals. 
or those who can't get a job. Comfort daily affirmations to lead you to career success, job postings, and profiles of professionals in cool jobs. If you're struggling, feel stuck, lost, confused, or are just worried about this career, reach out to me at stephanie at fancyscientist.com to schedule a free clarity call. I've talked to over 100 aspiring wildlife professionals and those struggling to get a job, and they've told me what I also experienced. Degrees alone do not prepare you for wildlife careers. You need the right combination of experience, education, network, and skills to land the job you want. You also need to be able to convey that on a job application and sell yourself to the employer. I've looked at over 100 cover letters and interviewed graduates. I can tell you for sure they are selling themselves short, not listing all of their expertise and not marketing themselves effectively. I've talked to potential students who have dynamic personalities and sound so knowledgeable and experienced in person, but when I look at their resumes or CVs, none of that is reflected. If what you have been doing is not working, it's not all of a sudden going to start working. It's time to make a change. If you want to get your dream job in the fastest way possible, schedule a Zoom meeting with me today. No matter what stage of your career you are at, from high school student to graduate searching for jobs, I can help you. It is never too early or late to start. If this episode helped you or someone you know, make sure to tag me on Instagram at fancy underscore scientist and share this podcast with your community to continue spreading the word and reach more people. Also, be sure to leave a review on iTunes to receive extra positive vibes and love from me. Plus, you'll be helping me reach even more people with this important message. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you.